This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. Maybe many of you can identify with him. He's a very impulsive guy. He says things first and then thinks about it later. He brags about his own, you know, abilities and strengths, and he overestimates himself. And he, and you know, he's one of these guys who just always just putting his foot in his mouth. And, he, and he's rebuking Jesus, kind of a little headstrong, you know. Who else rebuked Jesus? Only Peter. And so this is that guy, and he's a man of weakness. He is a man of sorrow. He is a man of repentance, and he is therefore a man that God can continue to use. As Pastor Gary takes you closer to the crucifixion of Jesus today, you'll get to see the reaction of one of his closest followers, the Apostle Peter. Peter had his ups and downs throughout his time with Jesus, and today you'll definitely get to see him at possibly his lowest point. But that's the amazing thing about God. He's not giving up on Peter. This flawed man will be used to spark an incredible revival, bringing countless people to the Lord. If God can use someone like Peter, He can use you too. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 22 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So it's okay to pour out your passion. Jesus pours out his passion. Here's my heart. I wish there was another way to do this. If it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. At the end of the prayer, the resolve is, may God's will be done, and may I have the grace to follow and accept whatever his will is. See, prayer is not manipulating God to just get what we want. God is not a vending machine that we just pull the lever and then all of a sudden we're going to get what we want. Um, God is not like this, you know, dad that we just wear down with our constant nagging like children can tend to do. And then we just give in to them and then we think, well, that's what God does with us. No, God has a perfect will for us. Uh, the old TV show, the, the name of it really is true. Father knows best. I know some of you are too young to even know what I'm talking about. But Father does know best. Your Father in heaven always knows best for us. So then why, if we are just aligning ourselves with the will of God, is it necessary that we should even pour out our passion when we're only going to get what God's will is anyway? Right? Have you ever thought that? What's the purpose then of praying if I'm never going to change God's mind? He's just going to end up giving me what he wants instead of what I want. Well, here's the deal. Sometimes God's will is actually what you want, but James says that you have not because you ask not. And until you ask, God is not obligated necessarily to deliver. But what he loves is when his children come to him, align themselves with his will, and maybe the whole time God was saying, yes, that's exactly what I had in mind for you, but I was waiting for you to ask. And now that you've asked, I want to show my goodness to you. Because if God gave it to you in advance, how would you ever know that it was an answer to prayer? So God has a will and what he wants for you, but sometimes he wants us to ask just so that we can see the wonderful, beneficent hand of our Father that is activated upon our submission to him. And so pray. Doesn't matter what the posture is. God is big enough to handle whatever passion you give and you pour out. But align yourself ultimately. It's the desire to align ourselves with the will of God 
to see his will accomplished in our lives. And that's what we see here that Jesus models. And so, verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up, uh, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Okay, now, here are the, here are the boys with the swords. They're like, maybe this is what Jesus meant. All right, we're ready. Should we strike with our swords? And one of them, verse 50, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. And But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Interesting that he's, what he says here. So he finishes praying, and he's speaking to his disciples about getting up. And then it tells us here how a crowd came to him. Now, Matthew's gospel says a large crowd. John's gospel says a band of men. And it is likely, again, this is some kind of a detachment of the Roman army, probably a, a cohort, which in those days was 480 soldiers. It is likely that when you think about a cohort and some other, you know, just kind of vagabonds that wander onto the scene and, and you know, uh, some motley crew that comes along and just attaches themselves to this, to this kind of a gang mob thing here, there's probably five to 600 people who have come. And among them, then, Jesus probably looks very average, you know, he's not like he's portrayed on the Bible series, my friends, okay? The Bible series that just came, Roma Downing, you know, that whole, that whole thing. Okay, they picked an Italian model. That was Jesus, okay? An Italian model who's about a head taller than anybody else. Guarantee you that's not how Jesus looked. Because Isaiah says that there was nothing about his countenance that we should desire him. Very average looking. And in those days, the average height was about 5'7". Picture 5'7", average looking. That's Jesus. And so Judas is going to identify for the Romans which one of these average looking guys is the one to arrest with a kiss. That's the signal. The one I kiss, then you're going to know. Because otherwise it's not this tall Italian model guy. It's just the average looking 5'7 guy. And so that's how he identifies Jesus with this kiss. And by the way, the Greek word for the kiss, um, that Luke doesn't really focus on that as much as the other Gospels, it is a word in the Greek that means to passionately kiss. In other words, he's just, he's really putting it on thick to, oh, you're smooching Jesus, just like, oh, you're like, you're my best friend. Not at all. It's the kiss of betrayal. And it is a terrible kiss of betrayal. And so in the process now, okay, here comes this mob. And this is when his disciples draw the sword like, yeah, we get to use the toys that Jesus told us to sell a cloak for. Now we got the swords. What are we going to do? And so it tells us here, unnamed, but John calls him out in John's gospel. John wants us to know it was Peter. (laughs) When you read John's gospel, it's just like, you know, Luke didn't want to tell his name. I'll tell you, it was Peter. Peter draws out the sword, and he cuts the right ear off. This is very interesting because Luke is the one who's very specific about this, the right ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And John also mentions that guy's name, the guy that got the ear cut off. His name is Malchus, and he's also given to us in John 18.10. And so here Peter cuts off his right ear. Now, 
you can read different things about this. We don't really know in the mayhem of the moment, you know, and, and it's probably, it's still dark because it's not yet quite daybreak. So, you know, does Peter know what he's really doing here? He's just kind of, you know, starting to wield the sword in the, in the dark. But one commentary I read said that likely he would have been right-handed and, and that the only way to cut off a person's right ear is if you got them from behind, that the person's back was to you. So their right ear, your right hand, and like this. Otherwise, you'd have to cross there. Anyway, who, who really cares? Really? It's the right ear that fell off. But most are agreed that probably he wasn't going for the ear, he was going for the head. And that he was a really bad shot. Personally, I think it would have made a much more awesome miracle. <laughs> See a head rolling across the ground like a bowling ball, and then Jesus is like, oh, he's vain. And he goes and he picks up the whole head, and, and it's dark. Maybe it's backwards for a moment, and then he spins. You know, that would have been awesome, okay? I'm all for that, but, but nevertheless, it, Jesus reattaches the ear, and this is going to be, you know, aside from, now you got to get the image out of your head, don't you? But aside from, obviously, the resurrection, this is the last of Jesus' miracle. He's going to reattach this guy's ear, which says something to me. Okay, maybe not to you, but what it says to me in general is this. Aren't you glad that Jesus knows how to clean up our messes? Because here, Peter's just, you know, being Peter, just impulsive, like, ah, yeah, oh, whoops. And Jesus comes along and reattaches the guy's ear, heals this guy, and, and it's this picture here of Jesus will clean up our messes. And here's Peter out of control, like m- most of us on most days. And, uh, and Jesus is so faithful to clean up the mess. Now, he says to them, again, this is where I pointed out a moment ago, no more of this. You know, and uh, Matthew adds in Matthew 26, 52, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Okay? In other words, he, he's saying, I'm not telling you here to go on the offensive with these swords. What you just did was an offensive thing. You went on the, the offensive I asked you to get swords to be on the defensive. So he's not advocating here to advance the gospel by the sword. In fact, he actually, <laughs> when you think about what he's saying here, he's not only Second Amendment pro, but he's also capital punishment pro right here. Because what he's saying is, you wield the sword aggressively to go after someone, you will die by the sword. There is punishment for those who draw the sword to aggressively kill with the sword. And um, he ends this section here by saying to the mob, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour. This is your hour when darkness reigns. And see, Satan has temporarily gotten his way, but not for long. Because folks, listen, Jesus says, this is when darkness reigns. But the light shines best in the darkness. And the light is about to shine in the midst of the darkness here in a moment. Well, reading on verse 54, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. 
About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Very moving scene here. Peter follows the mob. They've arrested Jesus. They're taking him to the Sanhedrin. He's going to end up at Pilate's uh, palace and then Herod and then back again to Pilate. And he follows at a distance, but he can still see him. Three times he denies knowing Jesus. These people point him out. Think you're with Jesus, are you? No, no, no. Think you're with Jesus? No. Think you're with Jesus? No. And uh, it says here you're a Galilean. See, the Galileans had a bit of a different accent in their, what would have been in the day, Aramaic. So you could, you could tell a Galilean from the rest of, the, of those who spoke the language because it was sort of like how you can tell somebody's from New York or, you know, or somebody's from the south, from Georgia. You, know, you can kind of hear that accent. They could hear a Galilean. They're like, you're one of those guys. Three times he denies knowing Jesus, the rooster crowed. And he remembered the words of Jesus. Jesus had told him in advance. Remember what he said to him. That's how we opened up our study. Verse 31, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Did he do that? Did Peter turn back and strengthen his brothers after a while? Yeah, he did. Did Peter fail? No, he did not. Jesus prayed that he would not fail. He didn't fail, he faltered. Let me tell you what failure would look like. Would be not only denying Jesus, but then completely bailing on him. He didn't bail on Jesus. He faltered here. There will be times that we falter. There will be times that we stumble. Get up. Don't fail. Don't run. Don't bail on God. There will be times that you and I will falter. And when Jesus looks at him, don't you know, I don't believe for a moment Jesus looked at him like, mm-hmm, told you so. Don't believe that for a moment. I believe he looked at him with penetrating eyes of love. Because that's the character of our Lord. Jesus never shamed people. He loved people in their failures. He loved people when, when they had disappointed him. No doubt the look on Jesus' eyes right here towards Peter was a look of love. And that is what caused him to be broken. And he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance. And that's what he did. He had godly sorrow. He was sorry for what he had done. And he was a broken man. And he repented and he wept before the Lord. And because of that, he was able to be restored That's what John spends a whole chapter in his gospel, John 21, talking about the restoration of Peter. And then Peter is used in the book of Acts to preach the first evangelical message such that 3,000 people get saved. Peter did go back and strengthen his brothers. Peter was used again. Peter was not discarded. Yes, he had faltered. Yes, he had stumbled. Yes, he had disappointed the Lord. But he repented with godly sorrow. And therefore, God could still use him. And God can still use you even though you've disappointed, even though maybe you have sinned against the Lord in different ways and you're thinking to yourself, how could God ever use me again? How could God ever forgive me? How could God this? How could God that? Look at the life of Peter, a man who had denied even knowing Jesus three times. And yet there was a redemptive purpose in his life and God used him to preach the first message of the cross 
So 3,000 people would get saved in the book of Acts. So this is a man who's very much like you and me. He's, he's, you know, maybe many of you can identify with him. He's a very impulsive guy. He says things first and then thinks about it later. He brags about his own, you know, abilities and strengths, and he overestimates himself. And, he, and you know, he's one of these guys who just always just putting his foot in his mouth, and, he, and he's rebuking Jesus, kind of a little headstrong, you know. Who else rebuked Jesus? Only Peter. And so this is that guy, and he's a man of... Weakness. He is a man of sorrow. He is a man of repentance. And he is therefore a man that God can continue to use. And uh, he weeps bitterly here. You know, church tradition says, church tradition says that people would remind Peter of his denial of Christ by mocking him with the sound of a rooster. That whenever Peter would get up to say something, there would be somebody in the crowd that would just go, can you imagine that? And yet that guy would hear the mocking and still say, the Lord has forgiven me and I'm going to still carry on with him. Despite what people think, people might mock, people might discourage you, people might try to remind you of your past. Sometimes, unfortunately, people can be cruel that way. But the Lord is the God of second chances. So continue to walk in his grace and let him use you for his glory. Well, verse 63, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Okay, now they're point blank asking him, are you the Messiah? He's hauled before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And so this is a Jewish ruling council of of 70 elders. They are interrogating him and they're breaking a lot of their own rules in doing this. And I'm not going to go over that. We talked about it in, in Matthew and Mark. But they ask him point blank, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Now, As we read that, we may not catch what they caught because what he actually did right there was to quote from a messianic psalm that was well known among the Jews still to this day, a messianic psalm, Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 verse 1 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So they ask him, are you the Christ? And he says, well, if you wouldn't believe me if I told you so. And if I asked you, you wouldn't answer me. But here, let me just quote Psalm 110 because it has everything to do with me. And he quotes Psalm 110. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all ask, verse 70, are you then the Son of God? Because they know that's a Messianic Psalm. You are applying that to you? So they say, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you are right in saying, I am. Now, it is very important that we don't miss this here. To the Jewish ear, they would have heard this differently from how we just heard it there in English. You are right in saying, I am. And they, let me just finish the rest of the verse. And then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Now, please note what Jesus says there when he answers them by saying, you are right in saying, I am. He is using that great statement of the identity of Yahweh back in Exodus chapter 3 when he reveals himself to Moses. 
When Moses says to the burning bush where God is speaking to him, when you send me to Egypt to deliver my people, the Jews, who should I say has sent me? And that's when God says to Moses, you say to them, I am has sent you to them. And I am is that Hebrew word to be, which literally translates the self-existent one. That is the identity of the Lord, of God himself. So when Jesus is saying here, you are right in saying, I am, he's actually making a statement that identifies with God himself. He is claiming divinity right here. Don't miss it. He's saying, you are right in saying, I am. In the same way that in John's Gospel, chapter 8, when the critics of Jesus were not accepting him for who he really is, in John chapter 8, around verse 58, Jesus says, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it. And they say to Jesus, well, you are not yet 50 years old, and yet you say that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, behold, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And he used that same identification to make himself known as being God himself. So when he answers their question here, are you saying you're the son of God? And he says, I am. He doesn't really mean it in the way we think of the English. Yeah, I am. That's yeah, you got it. Yeah, you're right. He is actually identifying himself with the name of God, professing his divinity here that he in fact is God. That is why they respond by saying, we don't need anything else. We've heard it. You're saying it twice. You're quoting from Psalm 110, and now you're saying this in relation to your identity. You've just been a witness to yourself twice now. We don't need any other testimonies. We're going to condemn you right here. So he's revealing himself in his identity, and this is what then is going to stir them up. They're going to want to kill him here. Now they have a problem. The Roman government took capital punishment away from the Jews about... 13 years before this. So they're in a dilemma. You see, if they could operate according to their own Mosaic law, they would stone Jesus for blasphemy because they don't believe that he is God. And by the fact that he claims to be God, they then interpret that to be blasphemy. And according to their own Jewish law, then they would stone him to death for such a thing. The problem is capital punishment has been taken away from the Jews. The Roman government has said to the Sanhedrin, you can't kill your own people anymore. You have to give just cause by the Roman government in order for us then to kill someone, not you. They took this part away from them. This is why then the Jews have to go to the Pontius Pilate and to trump up charges against the Roman government against Jesus so that they can have Jesus killed. If they go to Pontius Pilate and say, this guy here claims to be God, the Romans could care less. They're not going to kill him over that. But if they go and say to Pontius Pilate, this guy here asserts himself to be king and there's only one king, we know that to be Caesar, and he wants to overthrow the Roman government. He talks about not paying your taxes and they trump up all these different charges. What they're trying to do is to lay claim according to Roman standard in order to get Jesus killed because they know they themselves aren't able to kill him, though they want to. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? 
That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus. Know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know